starting our new series today, Frequently Asked Questions. Our congregation submitted questions, and then this, this next four weeks of sermons, uh, they're based on the questions that you submitted. So let's watch. Today, the question we're, we're wrestling with is, how do I love people who hate? Somehow, you know, in Christian teaching, people who haven't been a part of church have absorbed that somehow I'm supposed to love everybody. Jesus says to love your enemy and love your neighbor as yourself and pray for people who hurt you and turn the other cheek when somebody strikes you. And so this teaching gets into the water. And even folks who don't go to church understand that Christians are supposed to love. But in the times we live in, as Jackie was saying earlier, it can really challenge us. Um, challenge us to, to certainly to love people that we think are not loving. And at the same time, it, it can also go farther than that. It can actually challenge us to think, should I love the people who I don't think are loving? How should I respond in the kind of divided culture that we live in, when I see people saying things they're saying, or, and I see actions being carried out that, that to me are anything but loving, and they're based on hatred of other people, how do I respond to that? Is it even, is it possible to love them? If it is, how? And so I think this question, uh, this two, uh, two questions came in that were this exact question, but there's also more than that, because some of the questions that were asked kind of expressed the divided times that we live in, some of them were more personal. One of the questions I read last week was that my, my aunt slash godmother was murdered a year ago by a random person. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and this person took her life. How am I supposed to love that person? How am I supposed to forgive? What an amazing question, and a question that just gets to the guts of life, doesn't it? Because it's not just an abstract intellectual issue in divided political times, but it's also a question about what, what do I do when people hurt me? And we've all experienced many times in our lives people hurting us deeply. And maybe as I even say those words, you think of one time in particular where the pain has been so deep and you've tried to love, you've tried to forgive, you know, you know you're supposed to forgive, and, and it just seems like I just can't get past it. So there's a lot in this question, how do I love people who hate? So we're going to talk about both of those categories today, the, the, the political division that we live in right now and the, the hatred that we seem to see coming from some people. And then also, how do I deal with it when people hurt me deeply? So first of all, the FBI found that between 2016 and 2017, hate crimes 
increased by 17% in one year. And there has been an increase from 2014 to 2017, but from 2014 to 2015, it was a little bit, a few percentage points, and then 2015 to 2016, a few percentage points. And then in, in 2016, the graph goes like this. From 2016 to 2017, they increased 17%. And Brian Levin is uh, an expert in studying hate crimes. And he uh, is, in, is in, I think, Cal State and San Bernardino. And he said that hate crimes tend to follow emotionally um, polarizing times in, in our history. So he said, for example, a, an election with a lot of conflict. And when there's an emotion, emotion is ratcheted up during a, a divisive presidential election, you can see an increase in hate crimes. That there are people who listen to the rhetoric and then they act on that rhetoric. Brian Levin, an expert in hate crimes. And so even if, even if we're not just thinking of hate crimes, all of us have felt some kind of a strain due to the times that we live in. Maybe it's been a strain with, with friendships or family members. And, and there are political opinions expressed, like everybody agrees with them, and you're like, wait a second, whoa, I don't. And now do I say something? Do I not say something? Now all of a sudden dinner is uncomfortable, and, and what was supposed to be a good family time has gotten weird all of a sudden. And now what do I do? And it may not be hate. It may not be as strong as hate, but there's still this political division where we're, we're living in a time where the, where the division is widening. And there are lots of people who just assume that everybody else agrees with them. But then you know they don't, or, or it's friendships that have been strained. And of course, we know we're in the middle of a culture war in our country. It's been going on for longer than I've been alive. But we've seen that, just like that, that statistic in hate crimes, we've seen that culture war ramp up over the past couple of years. And probably everybody here has felt that strain. It's also caused what could be millions of people to leave their church. Some of you are here because a couple of years ago you discovered that the, the politics uh, were the, the politics were deeply woven into your church more than you thought, and and you decide I don't want to be a part of this. And some of you are here because of that. If the stats are true, you are one of millions of people who left their church in 2016. There was a, a study released by the Washington Post that 14% of churchgoers left their churches between October and December of 2016 because they perceived that the leadership of their church held political views that they just couldn't stomach and it was way more important than what they realized. And they thought, wait a second, I just, I'm just not on board. And so they're spiritually homeless. And if you've been paying attention to politics lately, and we're not trying to get deeply into politics here. We don't tell people how to vote. You vote the way you're going to vote. You vote your conscience. And everybody should vote, by the way. Can I get an amen there? That everybody should vote. Amen. And, so, and some applause. I, I think, that's, I think that we're, that's appropriate. All right. So we're not telling people how to vote. But if you've been paying attention to politics, you even see there's, in the Democratic debates recently, there's been a divide in the Democratic Party, hasn't there? Over, over the past couple of years. And, and they're struggling to figure out what to do with this time of division that we live in. So good, thoughtful people are torn because we want less division in our society, and at the same time, we also want to speak out against injustices we see. We're, we're torn between, well, I want to be a bridge builder, but I also want to speak out and, and speak to things that I think are important. And I feel like if I don't, I'm not doing my job as a, as a moral person in society. 
And so we're torn between how do we handle division and how do we speak out. The author and, and Nobel laureate and Holocaust survivor Elie Vassell famously said, we must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. So lots of people would agree with that. We must always take sides because we want to speak out. And at the same time, a lot of us are just fatigued that there is so much side-taking. Are you with me? We're just torn between these two feelings. What do we do? How do we speak out? And we, yeah, we have to take sides on some things, but we're tired of all the taking of sides. And how do we, how do we navigate the times we live in? In an incredibly divided culture, perhaps... It's how you say it that makes all the difference in the world. What motivates you to say what you believe? Is it love? Is it hate? Is it annoyance? Is it wanting to be right? Or is it pure altruism? I want to speak up for people who, who don't have a voice. But it's how we say it, perhaps, that makes all the difference in the world. Do we say it in a way that furthers hate or do we say it in a way that gives love a fighting chance? And so on June 16th, 1858, at the Illinois State Capitol in Springfield, Abraham Lincoln accepted the Illinois Republican Party's nomination uh, to run for U.S. Senate uh, from Illinois. And he gave what became known as the House Divided Speech. And this speech is how he launched his campaign for the Senate seat held held by Stephen Douglas, They went on to have the famous Lincoln-Douglas super divisive debates. And uh, Lincoln quoted Jesus in this speech a couple of years before the Civil War began. And he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all another. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that is is in the course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become lawful in all the states, old as well as the new, north as well as the south. And so Lincoln drew a contrast. It's going to be one way or another, all one way or all another. And that's good. That's a, that's a great speech, of course, in American history. And at the same time, we know that wasn't totally true. Slavery became illegal, but it wasn't like everybody agreed with that. There, there, the will of the people was to make slavery illegal, but we are still feeling the consequences of that decision. If you are a student of American history, perhaps we are still feeling the results of the Civil War and our politics. But Lincoln observed rightly... Yeah, we can't continue divided forever. And at the same time, it's not like everybody is always going to agree on the best course of action. We live torn between those two realities. And so Arthur Brooks uh, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times a few weeks ago entitled, Our, Our Culture of Contempt. And he said, our country is more divided than it has been since the Civil War. And he quoted a stat here, one in six Americans no longer talks to a family member or close friend because of the 2016 election. He then suggests that disagreement is perhaps not the bad thing, that it's not bad to disagree, but that what is damaging to our country is contempt. And contempt is defined as the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving 
scorn. So Arthur Brooks is saying, it's not bad that I disagree. What is harmful to the country is if I disagree and then I choose to feel contempt towards the person I disagree with. And because I disagree with them, because they hold a different view than me, they are now less than me. It's not just that they disagree, it's now they're bad because they disagree with me. He says that is what is dangerous to the country. When we feel contempt for people who disagree with us or who voted differently than we do. When we see things happening and and words spoken and actions taken that we believe express hate, it's very, very difficult for us to separate those words and actions from the people they come from. Are you with me? And so perhaps that is the key. Is there some way to separate words and actions from the people? Would that that be a good thing? Well, the Apostle Paul writes to the, the believers in Jesus meeting in a town called Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 13. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, against evil. And then listen to what Paul says here. He's talking about the armor of God. This is, this is a fighting metaphor. This is a war metaphor. Listen to what he write, writes. Verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So that's an, that's an ancient way of, of making a statement. You may not make it in the same way. But what Paul seems to be getting at here is our struggle, our fight, our war is not against flesh and blood, meaning it's not against other people. Our fight is not against other people. Other people are not the enemy that we're trying to defeat when we put on the whole armor of God. What we're trying to defeat is some kind of spiritual force of evil authorities and and powers. And and again, that's an ancient way of stating something that we might state like this. Our fight fight is not against other people. Our fight is against ideas. Our fight is against ideology. So that we're not putting on the full armor of God. And by the way, how how many of you remember seeing like flannel graph posters in Sunday school of like the breastplate of righteousness? You know what I'm talking about? And the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. And, and this was like a great Sunday school song. And, and Paul says, yeah, we're putting on the full armor of God. We're in a spiritual war. But that's exactly what it is, a spiritual war, not a physical one. So for Paul, there is a distinction between people and ideas between people and ideology, between people and spiritual forces, dark spiritual forces, evil spiritual forces, there's a distinction for Paul between people and those things. Perhaps that's the question for us. As we think about how do we love people who hate? When we see people saying things and and doing things that are just motivated by hate, and it's obvious and we can see it. Perhaps the question for us is, am I able to see a difference between the person and the idea. Does that make sense? Because I think for Paul that existed. There is a difference between a person and the idea. Seeing a person only for their ideas 
if they are one and the same, if what they say and what they do are the same thing, well, then contempt is the only natural response. And then let's be honest. The El Paso shooter thought that. When he wrote up a, a white supremacist manifesto before he killed the people in El Paso a couple of weeks ago, that's what he thought. These people are bound up with their ideas and their race, and because of that, they're bad. And so the only thing left to do now is kill them. Because if we believe there's no difference between people and their ideas, what else would you do? Civil war is the logical conclusion. That's certainly not what, what we're about. That's certainly not what Jesus Christ is about. So the second part of that question seemed to be motivated by personal hurt. The person asked a question about something horrendously painful that has happened to them. A family member was taken. Their loved one was murdered. Now, maybe something like that has happened to you. Maybe it's, it's not murder, but maybe you have been hurt by other people to the extent that it is difficult for you to move on. I have. A couple times in my life at least, I've been wounded so deeply where it was just hard for me to be able to, to move on in any way. And I know, you know, Christians are supposed to forgive. And I thought, man, how would I ever do that? I have no idea. I don't even want to. I don't want to forgive the person. And maybe, maybe you're thinking of ways that you have been hurt so deeply. And when you look at a question, how do I love this person? I'm like, I have no idea. I just want to heal. I just want to be able to get past it. I have no idea what it would look like to love that person. A few weeks ago, and I think back in the movie series, I quoted a seminary professor of mine named Teresa Davis, who was a counselor. And she said so many times, and it was just burned in my memory, every loss must be grieved. Every loss must be grieved. And certainly losing a loved one, well, that's, that's a loss of life. So that's an obvious painful loss. Anytime a person hurts you or takes something from you, it's a loss. And every loss must be grieved. Or maybe it was a missed opportunity. Or maybe somebody kind of stepped over you to get the promotion. Or maybe somebody betrayed your confidence. Or maybe somebody just left in an unceremonious way. And you know, like, how do I pick up the pieces? Maybe there were words that were spoken to you that were devastating to you. And you think, how could I ever get over that? How could I ever move past that? Well, first of all, maybe it just helps to recognize that's a loss. It's a death of some kind. Something was lost. Something died. And Teresa says every loss must be grieved. She actually lost a, a college-age son to a disease. She knows about grief. A disease took her son. That was certainly a loss. But maybe somebody has hurt you, and whatever that looks like, that's a loss. And grief can take a long time. Grief is a profound sadness. It's our, it's our brain trying to work out the emotional implications of what has happened to us. And it is pretty much out of our control. I've heard experts in grief talk about grief like it's a wild horse. And you, and you think you're just going to put a saddle on it and instantly tame it, and it's just not how it works. We are proven pathetically wrong when we try to do that. But instead, grief just has to, it has to work its own way out. It's a sense of sadness and, and can even feel like depression deep in, in the emotional centers of our brain. And whatever happened to you, you, your brain just has to file that somewhere. Figure out what folder to drag it into 
and, and the emotions that are connected with that, your, your brain tries to file those as well, and it just takes time. And so for many people, I remember I said this a few weeks ago, but if you weren't here, it bears repeating, and I don't know if it's possible to say this enough. For so many people, they think they can't really forgive. Like, this is just too deep. I can't forgive that person. I've tried. I can't forgive them. I know I'm supposed to forgive them, but I can't forgive them. What they really need to do is grieve. Forgiveness isn't really the issue. What really needs to happen is grief. I think this is true, that when you've actually grieved a loss, really grieved it, which can take years, forgiveness can almost be automatic. Forgiveness may not be the, the big you know, challenge, impossible obstacle that so many of us think it is. It may be that once we've grieved, forgiveness actually comes a lot easier than what we thought. Because grief is what takes time. Grief is probably the hardest part. And I've, I've given this in sermons over the years probably 10 times. I don't know. And maybe some, some people might get tired of it over, over, over the course of, you know, uh, of the church. I don't know. But I just feel like this can't be said enough. I always like to talk about what forgiveness is and what it isn't. And so I think that's helpful too. If you have grieved or if you are grieving and you're feeling like maybe, I don't know, maybe I should forgive that person. I don't, I don't know how, but what would that look like? What would it look like to forgive that person? Well, here's what forgiveness is not, and maybe this might help too. Forgiveness is not trust. Trust is earned over time. So if somebody hurts you, and I'm, of course I'm not talking about life-taking actions or, or um, uh, you know, abuse, I don't know that trust is ever really rebuilt there. But if somebody has hurt you and trust is even a possibility, it has a possibility of being rebuilt, it takes time. Trust is earned over time. Forgiveness can be instant, actually. But trust is earned over time, so forgiveness is not trust. Forgiveness is also not excusing the offense, pretending that it didn't happen or it wasn't a big deal. That's not what forgiveness is. What happened to you was horrible and painful, and you've had to walk with it. If people only knew the pain that that's caused you. So forgiveness is not excusing it or diminishing it or pretending that it didn't happen. What happened was wrong, and it was extremely painful. Forgiveness is also not forgetting a lot of Christians probably get hung up on this because there's this idea that, you know, forgive and forget. Actually, your brain will probably not let you forget when something painful has happened to you. What happens when we, when we touch a hot stove burner? Every time you get around a hot stove burner again, your brain's like, don't touch that. Stove burner, stove burner. And so if, you, if somebody has hurt you and, and it's cut you deeply to the, to the extent that you're grieving and you're having trouble forgiving that person, every time you think of that person's name, every time some, something reminds you of that person, your brain is going to tell you, don't forget. Don't forget what that person did to you. Don't go there again. They're going to hurt you. They did it before. They're going to hurt you again. The human brain is wired to remind us of pain. So it may not be forgetting. It might look like not replaying it in your own mind intentionally because that's not forgiving. That's not moving on. But your brain not, might not let you forget so it's not trust, it's not excusing it, it's not forgetting. Here's what forgiveness is. The New Testament word for forgiveness is release. It's actually the same word that's used for divorce. You, for, in forgiveness, you are divorcing yourself from something. You are releasing something. You are sending something away. And what you're releasing, what you're divorcing, what you're sending away is the offense. I no longer am concerned about holding on to this person's shirt collars in my own mind. 
and making them pay for what they did to me. I'm just done. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to release it. I'm going to send it away. I'm going to dismiss it. I'm going to divorce myself from the need to make that person pay. I'm going to let go and let them live their own life. But in my mind, I'm not going to be tied to that anymore. Forgiveness is released. A person has said that, that forgiveness, forgiving somebody else, is like opening the prison door and then discovering who was it that's freed? You. That we can imprison ourselves by holding on to some offense. But after we've grieved, forgiveness is just letting it go. When you don't forgive, that person still holds power over you. This is the part that's also important to remember. You might fear seeing that person again. When you think of their name, your, your fight or flight instinct kicks in. You live in this adrenalized state, which is bad for your heart over time. And, and it's just like they're just there with you all the time, even though maybe they hurt you years ago. But not forgiving when you hold on to that, you, you're keeping them close. You're keeping the offender close to you. Where they shouldn't really have power over you anymore, but they have power because you're giving it to them. And forgiveness also releases you from that. And so we, usually we say, the, you know, say a prayer and read the Lord's Prayer together. I want to read the Lord's Prayer together out loud here in a second. Um, and then I want us to take a look at it just quickly before we wrap up and think about what the Lord, Lord's Prayer means when it comes to loving people who hate. Let's all read it out loud together right now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So there's the obvious line, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The word can be debt that's used in, in some prayers or trespasses. They're a way of saying sin. Somebody has hurt me or they've, they've, they've trespassed. They've, they've gone someplace they shouldn't have gone in my life. And we pray every week, Forgive us our sins, God, as we forgive those who sin against us. And it puts this obvious idea out there that somehow God's forgiveness of my sins is connected to my forgiveness of somebody else's sins. That if I don't forgive, then maybe God doesn't forgive me. If, if I'm not willing to let it go, then maybe God's not willing to let it go. And, and that, is, that is the teaching behind the Lord's Prayer, and in other places, the parable of the unmerciful servant, if you know that one in, in the New Testament. It gets that idea across as well. Why? Have you ever thought about this? Why? Why, why is it important to forgive? Why would God care if I forgive people or not? Why is forgiveness important? Like, it's hard, I know that. Like, wh why, would it, why would I even want to forgive people? And, I mean, is that a question you've ever asked? Like, wh why would I want to do that? Perhaps the answer lies here. Have you ever noticed when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we don't pray it like this. My Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, give me this day my daily bread and forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. Lead me in the not, not in the temptation. Have you ever thought about that? Has it occurred? We don't pray my Father. We live in a very individualistic culture, don't we? 
where it's just kind of me and my way and, and, and we just kind of think in terms of ourselves, you know, individually. But that's not the Lord's Prayer. As a matter of fact, all of the Gospels and all of the letters of Paul, when Paul writes you, hey, you Ephesians, put on the full armor of God, it's not, it's not you individual, put on the full armor of God. It's, it's all of you together, plural, put on the full, the full armor of God. Y'all, put on the full armor of God. The Lord's Prayer is y'all. Paul's writings are y'all. The Gospel teaching, y'all. Why is that? It seems to be that God is concerned about community and relationships and friendships and commitments, marriages, and living as closely as possible with each other without things coming between us and breaking those relationships apart as much as possible. It seems to be that community and friendship is a concern of God's. And isn't this true without forgiveness? There's no such thing as a relationship. Any married couples want to say amen to that? Without, Without forgiveness, there's no community. There's no church family. There's no family. There's, there's no relationship with siblings. There are no friendships. There are no real business relationships possible without forgiveness. Forgiveness is the glue that makes relationships possible, that holds relationships together. Why? Because we all make mistakes. We all sin. Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We all are. We're all in the same boat. It's not meant to shame you. It's just a reality of the human condition. And somehow, if I'm, if I'm able to see, you know, I, I'm not perfect, and no, I've, I've never done anything like taking somebody's life like was done to that person who asked the question. At the same time, I am, I have hurt other people in other ways, not ways like that, of course, but I've done all kinds of things that I feel sorry for, that, and I need forgiveness. I need God's forgiveness. And so if I'm focused on my relationship with God, perhaps, and, and, and I'm thankful for God's grace towards me, my, God's amazing grace towards me, then perhaps it just becomes a little easier to grieve and then forgive, knowing that no relationships are possible without forgiveness. Desmond Tutu said, without forgiveness, there is no future. When when some offense has happened in a relationship, and it may be something horrible like that, where it's truly a challenge to forgive and move on, and that it may be a lifelong process. That's, that's just, that is not going to be easy. But there are also times when we're offended or hurt by somebody, and it, it hurts, but at the same time, we know we should deal with it and move on. You know, the annoyances of life or the words that are, you know, shared and exchanged, and we just know, you know, I've been holding on to this for a while. Maybe I've even already grieved it. It's just time to forgive. Without forgiveness, there is no future. Relationships are not possible without forgiveness. And God is somehow concerned about us and not just me. So we saw more mass shootings over the past couple of weeks. We know that the El Paso shooter wrote a white supremacist manifesto. He made his motivation clear. The Dayton shooter seemed to be a left-leaning person in politics and killed his own sister. And it's just, we don't understand why these things happen the way that they do, and we think of all the lives lost and the grief caused by the shootings in Sandy Hook Elementary, the Amish school several years ago, the theater in Aurora, Colorado, Virginia Tech, Virginia Beach, 
the synagogues in Pittsburgh and San Diego, the shooting at Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina, and, and so many others. We're, you know, we know that's just the tip of the iceberg. And among these tragedies, we see the worst that human beings are capable of. And then at the same time, we also see the best that human beings are capable of. Steph Curry, who uh, is a basketball player for the Golden State Warriors, and, and Viola Davis, uh, an actress, are producing a documentary called Emmanuel about the shooting at Mother Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in South Carolina four years ago. And I'm not going to say the shooter's name, but he wrote a, a manifesto, and, and he said in his manifesto he wanted to ignite a race war. He wanted to go shoot people in an historically black church because he wanted to start a race war. And so he walked into Mother Emanuel Church during a prayer meeting, and he stayed in that prayer meeting for, I think it was about an hour, where he, he was in a prayer meeting with the people that he was going to shoot. And at the end of that prayer meeting, he opened fire, and he shot nine people in this church. Two days later in court, the survivors and the family members of the victims Shocked the world. This was a high-profile shooting in a church. It was an obvious hate crime. The shooter had a racist manifesto. You're seeing the worst of American history. It was in a, a prayer meeting with the people, talking with them, before he did it. It was just the worst act of violence imaginable. And these people shocked the world. Because one by one in the courtroom, while they looked at the shooter, the survivors and family members began forgiving him. One person um, who was a, uh, a survivor who was in the prayer meeting said, we enjoyed you. We enjoyed getting to meet you and to know you and to have you in our prayer meeting. And she said, I, I forgive you. And this movie that Steph Curry and Viola Davis are producing tells the story of this shooting and the forgiveness that these people practiced. And Jamie Atten, writing for the Mercury News, interviewed the director, Brian Ivey. And the interviewer asked Brian Ivey, you know, why is it that you wanted to do the movie? And he said, I had just gotten married in June of 2015, and I was on my honeymoon in New York. I walked into the bedroom, and my wife was crying. She told me nine people had been shot in their Bible study in Charleston, South Carolina. Then she looked at me and said, you don't understand. They're forgiving him. The family members are forgiving the murderer. I remember looking at her and saying, I hope whoever tells that story doesn't skip that part. It was that moment for me, encountering this radical, scandalous forgiveness and love for the murderer that drew me into the story. I wanted the world to know that part of the story. And then he, he goes on. He says, it was that they loved him, the shooter. It was this moment when survivor Felicia Sanders said something to him that really changed me. That line, we enjoyed you. We enjoyed getting to know you. He said, it changed me. When I go out and talk about the film, I'm not just talking about them forgiving him because they wanted to be emotionally free from him. I'm talking about a kind of love you rarely see. Their love for the shooter was a love that said, listen to this, 
I will bear the full weight of the wrong, which is the highest kind of love, a love for your enemy. What did Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I will bear the full weight of the wrong. That's a Jesus-like act carried out by those people who claim his name. And they represented the Jesus they follow. And in, in the, the most difficult, painful days imaginable. Another article, the Reverend Anthony Thompson, whose wife Myra died in the assault, was surprised to hear himself speaking words of forgiveness to the shooter at the bond hearing. And he urged the shooter to give his life to Jesus. He said he had not intended to speak, but he said, he said I felt God nudge me. That this was just a part of my witness as a follower of Jesus that I should say, I forgive you. And then later he said, whites and blacks, regardless of what creed, denomination, religion, or the color of your skin, that pretty, uh, they pretty much came together and unified and wanted to know what they could do to help. That's something that never happened in Charleston, South Carolina. That was a good thing. He was looking for the good that came out of it. Mark Twain said, forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. It was a Jesus-like act to bear the full weight of this wrong. And it also shows the evil for what it is, doesn't it? In, in light like that, the, the evil of that act is seen most clearly. And that a hateful, racist act like that, with, with all the fear and the, and the emotion that it brings up, it has no power compared to the power those people showed when they forgave that shooter. There's nothing he could ever do that could be a real threat to them. There's, there's, he has no power to take away their love, their joy, their choice to love. Again, Martin Luther King Jr. said, he or she who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in, all, in the rest of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. There is no power that that hate has that can defeat that kind of love. Are you with me, brothers and sisters? Do you hear that message in our, in our divided culture? Where people, how do I love people who hate? There's so much hatred and division around me. There is no hatred. There's no act that could ever be as powerful as choosing to love and to forgive. And it's that love and forgiveness that shows how evil and hate-filled it really is. And that's what will eventually kill it. Love will kill hate if it is expressed. But in order to do that, the hard part for us is we bear, like Jesus on the cross, we bear the pain of the wrong. Those folks in Charleston represented Jesus. And there's this idea, you know, in the Lord's Prayer that God's amazing grace is available to us and that no, we are not, you know, synonymous with our ideas, but we are different than those. We're created in the image of God and God can redeem people. He can change hearts. He forgives us for our sins. He offers us his amazing grace. That was a song that was written by a slave trader, who, somebody who was the ultimate white supremacist. And he repented of his sin. And he asked God for forgiveness. And he was so inspired by the idea that God could forgive him and he could lead a new life 
that he penned the words to the song Amazing Grace. You know, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And when, when, you are, when you are captivated by the grace of God that he has shown towards me, that he's shown towards you, forgiveness also becomes easier when we focus on his amazing grace. I want to close uh, today with a clip. And in this time of divisive presidential politics, some people might, I don't know, they might take issue with playing something, you know, something from a president, but I'm playing it for a couple of reasons. First of all, first of all, I think it was a presidential response to a, to a tragedy. And it was also historic because the sitting president of the United States uh, at this funeral for the victims of Mother Emanuel Church sang Amazing Grace and reminded all of us that our society, our relationships, any future that is possible for any of us is going to have to be based on love and forgiveness and God's amazing grace. So let's watch now. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's worth applauding for. Amen. It's God's amazing grace that makes relationships possible. A relationship with God, a relationship between any of us, no matter the offense. Now, every loss must be grieved. And for those of us who are struggling with losses that cut so deep, please don't hear me rushing you to forgiveness or downplaying what happened to you because every loss must be grieved. And that, that could take a very long time. And somehow during that grief process or at the end of it. It is God's amazing grace for us, the fact that God has forgiven me of my sins. It may not have been as great as what was committed against me, but God's forgiven me. And I've received God's amazing grace. And so now, if I'm, if I'm overtaken by his amazing grace, and if I'm thankful for it, perhaps that makes it easier to share grace to understand that people are not their ideas. People can change. People can be redeemed. I don't have to hate them. I don't have to take up arms against them. We're in a fight against ideas. And that I can also heal because instead of keeping that offense close to me and where, where it always holds power over me, I can choose to release it and send it away and I can be truly free because of God's amazing grace.